So we're at the um, fourth of a four-class series, but don't worry because you can come in at any point. All of the classes are standalone, but the four-class series is based on the topic of refuge. Refuge is what it is that we can, what it is that we can take protection under, what it is we can turn to for help with dealing with our lives. And... Um, in the Buddhist view, the, ver the, the main things that we can, there are a variety of things that we go for shelter to. And of course, there are the things that we go to in our daily lives, such as having a career, which brings in the money, which allows us to afford the gas to put in the tank of the car so that we can get around, etc. And those are like the ordinary forms of refuge. But in Buddhism, we're more interested in the ultimate forms of refuge. What are the things that if we invest in this bank account, that there's going to be a return in it. There's going to be a return for sure. And those are the, in Buddhist view, the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And um, it's traditional to begin a Buddhist teaching or a meditation session or whatever it is that you're doing by going for refuge to the three jewels. And uh, we have, of course, this little poem at the, uh, over here on the wall. I, I take refuge in awakening. I take refuge in the path of awakening. I take refuge in my companions on the path of awakening. Um, there are a lot of these kinds of poems, sort of like little catchphrases that we can check in with to help us remember what it is in our life that's, gonna, that's worth investing in. And so um, rather than explaining, what, rather than reciting one of those poems, if you go to a traditional Buddhist teaching, a more traditional Buddhist teaching with the Tibetan Lama, you know, you'll often hear um, recitations in the Tibetan language, kind of a chant that everybody recites together. Um, because we're not used to speaking the Tibetan language and we don't probably understand the Tibetan language, um, and maybe don't even understand what the three jewels are, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. That's Sanskrit, by the way, not Tibetan. Uh, I think it's useful, what I find useful is thinking about what the three jewels mean to me and how is it that they actually can provide some kind of protection or um, safety or help in my life. So um, in that in that uh, vein, to start this class, the, we're going to go for refuge together by contemplating the three jewels. The, the first of the three jewels is the Buddha. And the Buddha means, Buddha means to awaken. Awaken to the reality of what is actually happening here, as opposed to our opinions or our perceptions or our conceptual overlays, what's happening. The Buddha is a being that is seeing reality as it truly exists. And this is a being that is no longer experiencing suffering because they are not being buffeted around by their opinions or their habitual reactivity. They're able to see reality as it is and therefore they're not in a state of suffering. They're not in a state of uh, uncertainty and fear and confusion. They're just like okay with things as they are. And I mean on an ultimate sense, like they understand how the universe is working. And so going for refuge to the Buddha to me means that we're taking, 
comfort in the idea that there is a perfected state of consciousness, that our minds, that my mind, which is continuously reacting to what's coming up in my face, continually having these like intense emotions, whatever's happening, that there's a state of consciousness that's just like cool with everything and accepts everything just as it is without needing to like judge it as good or bad or like we like some people but we don't like other people. Like a Buddha just likes everybody. A Buddha just is cool with everything because they're not deluded by their own preconceptions. And so going for refuge to the Buddha to me means that we're going that we take solace in the idea that my consciousness will at some point evolve to the state of mind where I love everyone and I love everything. And that provides like a sense of peace and a sense of calm to my heart. Like I'm not going to be this egomaniac forever. I'm going to eventually like see other people as just as cool as me and just as worthy as, of love and protection and support and comfort as, as me say your name to yourself. And then the, the second of the three jewels is the Dharma. And the Dharma, Dharma is a very kind of complex word in Sanskrit because it means a lot of different things depending on the context. But in this context, it means there is Oh, there are things that I can put into practice in my own life that are going to help me get closer to that state of Buddhahood, that are going to help me to get closer to that state of waking up to reality, getting out of egomania, getting out of us versus them thinking. And I'm going to get to this, this point of being cool and chill and loving towards everything. That there are things I can do, right? Buddhahood's not like some high in the sky, like fantasy world, but like there are things I can put into practice in my life today and tomorrow and the next day and the rest of the days that I'm alive for and hopefully into future lifetimes, however many there may be, that are accelerating my process of being accepting and being compassionate and being loving. And so the Dharma is what we're doing here. You know, we've got this packet and all these pieces of paper with words on them. But the meaning of the words are meant to trigger in us a awareness of how reality is really working so that we can stop being so neurotically micromanaging of reality that's, that's not really under our control, but that we're learning things that will help pacify our mind, pacify our angry heart, so that we're better able to deal with reality as it is. So we take refuge in that. We take refuge in that there are things that we can do to help our heart and mind be more effective at loving others. And then we take refuge in the Sangha, and the Sangha, again, means a lot of different things. The Sangha can mean, in kind of a more religio-magical, spiritual sense, that there are bodhisattvas or, you know, invisible beings who are around us, coaxing us along on our spiritual path, our spiritual practice, that the things that are happening in our lives are special, 
and that the, what makes them special is that we're able to interpret them as guideposts that are pointing us in the direction that we need to go in order to grow as human beings, to grow in our cosmic evolution, grow beyond human beings, not limited by our biological impulses. Um, but in its more kind of like basic, grounded, like here and now kind of sense, the Sangha are people, other people in our lives who are interested in the Dharma, who are interested in being good for helping people who are interested in helping other people without expectation of, you know, that cash out or recognition or a payoff or something like that. So obviously, I, I think it's obvious, maybe it's not, but obviously everybody in this room is part of our Sangha, right? We're, we collectively are what make it possible to have a Sky Creek Dharma Center nonprofit organization volunteer supported and run by donations in our town so that we have some place to go on a Thursday night to think about emptiness, which is the topic mm -hmm. of the class tonight, the, the way that things really exist as opposed to the way that we are imposing our opinions, aggressively opposing our opinions upon everything all the damn time. <laughs> that we have a place to go that there are people who make it possible for us to go there, that we have people to hang out together with. I mean, I wouldn't be here talking about the Dharma if there weren't people who are interested in hearing about it. You know what I mean? Like, that's the only reason I show up is because people want this information, you know? And that's the Sangha. Like, you guys are what make it possible for me to practice the Dharma because you give me a reason to show up on Thursday night and give you a packet of all of this highfalutin stuff and talk about it for an hour or so. So we go for refuge to those things. We go for, we, we take, you know, on our daily basis, we take refuge in the fire department and we take refuge in our job and we take refuge in the, I don't know, the stock market maybe. I don't really know what people take refuge in, but we all are... We find solace in all of these ways. And in the Buddhist philosophical worldview, there are really only three things that you can take solace in, which is that the idea that your, that your consciousness is perfectible, that there are things that you can do today that are going to accelerate that process, and that there are people around you who are helping make it happen, that you're not alone in the process. So that's how we take refuge at the beginning of a Dharma teaching or a meditation. And that's what you know, these, this four-class series was about, um, refuge, the various different ways that we can take refuge. And this class tonight is about the most ultimate form of refuge, which is examining how reality is really working and figuring out how our mind, your mind, say your name to yourself, your mind is interacting with reality to create your experience. So in Buddhism, this is called emptiness or voidness, depending on who you talk to. There are different ways of looking at it. 
Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a common misconception in, boi- in Buddhism that voidness or emptiness means that there's like, um, that there's nothingness, that nothingness is a thing. And that's not what emptiness means. What emptiness means is that things, I'm just going to like put it out in the beginning and then we'll go through some of the logical proofs for that, that Buddhism uses to help us wrap our mind around it. Or more, or more accurately, break our mind's normal way of assuming things are happening. But emptiness does not mean nothingness. It means that the way we think things are occurring is wrong. They are empty of the qualities that we see in them. People, phenomena, objects, experiences that we are habitually seeing as being real, self-existent, but in fact are the relationship between the subjective interpretation, the objective sense data, and how those things are interacting with each other. In Buddhist metaphysics, the first thing that we do before we can disprove the existence of apparent phenomena is to identify what it is that we believe exists which doesn't exist. Um, On the handout, it says, identifying the object we deny. The Tibetan word for this object we deny is gakja. Uh, In the transliteration, it's G-A-K-J-A, gakja. And uh, gakja is easy to remember because it sounds kind of like what it is in English, which is when you, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you've got something on your shirt right here. Oh, Oh, gakja. The stain on his shirt never existed in the first place. That's a gakja. I believed it, though. For that moment. Damn. (laughs) You didn't. You played along. Thank you. (laughs) I have been cooking, so it was not too far-fetched. Okay. (laughs) The gakja is the thing that we believe exists, which doesn't exist. There's a lot of technical terminology on here, like Madhyamika Svatantrika versus Madhyamika Prasangika. And we will get into those things, but they're, you know, these are very technical kind of like differentiations where different Buddhist schools kind of argue with each other about, well, it doesn't exist like this. Well, I think it doesn't exist like this. And we're all trying to like figure out what it is that doesn't exist. So bear with me uh, as we kind of like do a hatchet job on this topic. The thing is that we are continually overlaying our habitual reactive perceptions onto sense data. We choose involuntarily which sense data it is that we invest significance into 
And then we overlay on that sense data what it means. And from that, we then interpolate what it is that really exists. And that whole process is a subjective process, which we interpret as objective. We think continuously, I can't, I mean, I can't speak for any of you, I'm using the royal we. We think that we're accurately interpreting reality, but we're actually overlaying our habitual, reactive, subjective tendencies onto the things that we think are happening, and then we believe that what we think is what's really happening. The gakcha is believing that our opinions are objective. So in, uh, there's a popular Buddhist metaphor, which is the magic show. And um, in the magic show, we, I should make it clear, these are a series of thought experiments, logical proofs to disprove the way that we are, uh, to disprove that way, the way that we think things are happening is in fact the way that they're happening. So we're looking for weaknesses in our habits that we can then exploit to stop trusting our opinions so much. So I kind of want to give that as a caveat because many of these metaphors and logical proofs are kind of, they're a little tenuous, you know, but they're just meant to like get you to stop having so much faith and what you think is right all the time. Okay, the magic show. In the magic show... <laughs> just magic Mike? <laughs> Taking off your chat. Da, da, da. <laughs> uh, in the magic show, there's a magician. And the magician has a stick. And the magician presents the stick to the audience. And then he or she... Um, says the magic words, does a little incantation, blows the fairy dust in your eyes or whatever. And then to the audience and the magician, the stick transforms into a horse. And the audience is astounded. That this is like uh, an illusionist, a Las Vegas illusionist, you know, who can like make a tiger materialize right in front of your very eyes or whatever. And the, for this metaphor, the the illusion is effective. The, the people who see the magic trick see the stick transform into the horse. They see the horse. The um, magician himself sees the stick transform into the horse. A bystander who shows up after the spell has been cast only sees the stick. Like the horse. They don't see the horse. They see the stick because they didn't get the fairy dust blown in their eye. They didn't hear the magic. They didn't get hypnot. Maybe a hypnotist is better than a magician. Like a hypnotist, but then the hypnotist gets hypnotized themselves. To be honest, I've always felt this metaphor to be a little. <laughs> okay. 
but it's a metaphor, so we don't have to take it too literally, do we? Nope. <laughs> so the audience is ordinary people. The audience are people who see the horse. They believe that they see the horse. They believe that the horse is really there. They are deceived, but they believe that the deception is reality. The magician also sees the horse because the magician also was a subject of the magic trick. But the magician knows that the horse is an illusion. The horse is a, not really a horse, so that it's a stick. But the magician sees the horse. Now the bystander who walks up after the spell has been cast, they don't see the stick or the horse, and they don't understand what everybody is ooing and aahing about. The metaphor is pointing towards three different types of perception, three different types of consciousness. The audience believes their perception to be objective reality. The magician sees the same deceptive reality, but they know that it is an illusion. And the bystander doesn't see the illusion at all. They see the reality how it really is, which is a stick, and that all the other people are perceiving something that's not really there. And these reflect three different aspects of our cosmic evolution, of our consciousness evolution. When we're stuck in samsara, we believe that the thing, we believe that what our senses are telling us is how reality really is. When we are experiencing emptiness as it really, at, directly, we see that the illusion is an illusion. Now there's this funny third category, which is that it's possible for an experienced meditator to go into what's called the direct perception of emptiness. Seeing the stick and not the horse is the direct perception of emptiness in this metaphor. But this is what's called an Arya, right? An Arya Bodhisattva. is somebody who has seen emptiness directly, but has returned to deceptive reality. And that's the magician, is the person who sees the horse, but knows that it's an illusion. So this metaphor is very valuable for us because our, our goal, our objective, is to be able to recognize that our senses are deceiving us. That our habitual acceptance of how we see things is an illusion. That's why this is in here.
So we're going to go through five proofs. These, are, these aren't proof in the scientific sense. These are proof in the logic sense, you know, a logical proof like a uh, syllogism. They're not syllogisms, but they're like syllogisms. And each one of these, the purpose of each one of these is to make us kind of scratch our head and question if what we think is real is real or not. And this is where the handout is really helpful because this handout is several pages long. Um, I hope that you'll take it home and read it because the things that I'm talking about here are from the handout. And so uh, that's meant to provide some, uh, uh, the authority of the lineage, you know, that what I'm talking about here isn't stuff that I've just made up. This is stuff that's from um, a lineage of Tibetan Buddhism that goes back at least 500 years. The author is Kedrup Tempa Dargye, who lived from 1493 to 1568. Um, but in fact, Buddhism goes back about 2,000 years, this um, philosophical worldview. So the first, of, the first of these is the emptiness of the one and many. When we take a given object, for example, we have a statue of a Buddha. When we look at this object, we see a single thing. We interpret it as a statue. It's one piece of wood, it was carved. It's uh, one object. And yet, if we examine it closely, we can see that there are parts to the object. We can focus on the hand or the face, or the robes, or the hairdo. And with each one of those, we are observing a part of the whole. And yet, when we're focusing on the part, we, in a way, we lose the whole. We're, when we perceive a part, the part becomes the new whole. The hand of the statue becomes the whole. And when we examine the hand, we discover that it too has parts. And so the hand, the hand is not the whole, the statue is the whole. But when we focus on the hand, the hand becomes the whole, it becomes a part of a bigger whole. I'm whole of W-H-O-L-E. <laughs> um, the, the hand of the statue becomes a part of the statue, but then the hand itself can be broken into its parts and we can consider the thumb of the hand or the, the first finger of the hand. And when we look at the first finger of the hand, it becomes the whole. And it, we can discover the parts within the first finger of the hand. And we can shift from the finger to the hand to the statue 
and contemplate any one of these aspects as if it were a whole or as if it were a part of a larger whole. And so in Buddhist metaphysics, the question is, is it, is it one thing or is it many things? It can't be both one thing and many things. Those are mutually exclusive. Those are a contradiction. That's a contradiction in terms to say that a thing, to say that a thing is a whole, is, a one, is one thing, and is also many things. That's a contradiction. If we believe that the thing exists, if we believe that the thing truly exists, then it has to be one or the other. It cannot be two things that are mutually exclusive. It cannot be, it cannot be one thing if it's many things. It cannot be one statue or many statues. If it were many statues, we wouldn't be able to see one statue. We would only be able to see many statues. If the hand were a, were, if the hand were a thing, it wouldn't be able to be part of another thing. It would either be that thing or it would be an other thing. Whether or not it appears to us to be one thing or a collection of things that combine to somehow create one thing is a quality of our mind. It's not a quality of the statue. If the statue existed as one thing, we would not be able to perceive it as many things, as hands and heads, as a hands and head and a hairdo and the various aspects of the thing. We would only be able to, if it were one thing, essentially, self-existently, what I mean here, the gakcha, the gakcha is the statue that exists when all of us leave the room. When we're all not here doing something else before any of us got here, the statue that's in the room is the, the thing that we think exists, which does not exist. We believe it exists because obviously there it is, right? It's right there. Like, I mean, how did it get here if it wasn't in the room before I got here? Like, obviously it's one statue carved out of one block of wood. Who knows where it came from? Probably Thailand. And, you know, it was carved by an artisan and it was shipped here or brought over in somebody's Luggage, it's a little too big to fit in someone's luggage. But somebody, it, somehow it got here, that object got here. It lives here in the Dharma Center, and when we're not here, it's just chilling out. That's a gakcha. That's a, a self-existent, singular thing that we believe exists. But when we examine it, we realize that it's made of parts. And that the parts are made of parts. 
and the parts of the parts are made of parts. And down you go until there's no findable part. There's no part of the whole that exists that can't be broken up into its parts. Therefore, the fact that we believe it's a thing is a conceptual overlay onto parts of parts of parts of parts of parts ad infinitum. And that's a little wedge in the way that we assume things exist. We think there's a car, but the car is made of parts. If somebody gave you a box full of all of the parts that you would need to assemble a car, would that be a car? All of the parts are there. <laughs> What's wrong? It's a car. There it is. It doesn't function as a car, though. It has to be, the parts have to be oriented in the right fashion in order to be the kind of whole we want it to be. Which part do you remove? Could you remove one of the Buddha statue's finger, fingers and there would still be a Buddha statue there? <laughs> <laughs> Two of the fingers, maybe? <laughs> like, which which part or combination of parts is the whole that we're certain, that we're certain exists, that's there when we're all not paying attention to it. If you remove one of the wheels of your car, is it still a car? What about if you remove one of the windows of your car? Is that still a car? Which of the parts do you need to be able to have the overlay of the whole. This is called the emptiness of one and many. Is it one thing or is it many things? It can't be, it can't be both one and many things. It can't be, your car isn't many cars. You don't have a whole fleet of cars. But then again, at the same time, the parts don't necessarily make the car. And you don't necessarily need all of the parts to your car to have a car. These are thought experiments to help us understand that our perception of things is an overlay on the sense data. All right, let's try the sliver of diamond reasoning. That's the emptiness of the one and many. We have five of these. You're doing great. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> if I understood this stuff. Can I ask, when we leave the room, is that, that's not a statue anymore, right? It's only sort of a statue because we call that a statue. Is that, would that fall under the one and many or is that coming up? Um, that's the fifth one. Oh, all right. I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> okay. Sliver of diamond. The sliver of diamond is worse because... <laughs> the one in many is based on the idea that we're, we're continuously, instinctively saying, okay, that's a lamp, that's an apple, that's a car, that's a statue, that's a computer, that's a whatever the heck it is. You know what I mean? 
We're, we're continuously, that's a person, you know? And we're just continuously, okay, yeah, that's that, that's that, that's that. We're not even thinking about it, you know? But the, the one in many says that, well, it's, it's only that way because you're lumping together a bunch of stuff and immediately saying, okay, well, I believe that, I believe that the way I perceive that thing is the way that it really is. The sliver of diamond is worse because, I shouldn't say worse. It's, not, it's probably bad karma for me to say that. Uh, it's a little more challenging because it then, based on the, the emptiness of one and many, we also need to deconstruct the way that we think that the things came into existence. Where do things come from? Are things caused by themselves? Are things caused by something other than themselves? Are things covered by, um, created, caused, thank you. Are things caused by both a, some like combination of themselves and something else that's not themselves? Or are things caused by neither themselves nor something other than themselves? Which is to say they arise without a cause. Now, I'm not an expert, but I'm pretty sure that most of these are absurd. I mean, they're, they're absurd in the sense that they're pointing at the fact that the way that we think the reality is working is completely illogical. Could things come from themselves? Was the statue created by itself? No. No, that's ridiculous. Was the statue created by something other than itself? Yeah. Well, that's what we think. Okay, we'll come back to this one. Could, was the statue created by a combination of itself and something other than itself? Well, if it wasn't created by itself, how could it be a combination of itself and something other than itself? This is just meant to like crack your, crack your mind a little bit. And could the, was the statue created by something that was neither itself nor something other than itself? nothing. That's just ridiculous. Right. <laughs> so the thing that we assume is happening is that the statue was created by something other than itself. Right, that's what I said. That's what you said, that's, that's, you said what we were all thinking. But I'm wrong? Well, it's the gokcha again. <sighs> gotcha. Because, all right. <laughs> if it were created by something other than itself, that something that we believe that created the statue would have to be a singular, unchanging, self-existent thing. A singular, self-existent, unchanging thing could not possibly create something other than itself. So that puts you back to the first one. Was it created by itself? Well, no, the statue didn't carve itself. Well, was it created by something other than itself? Well, that, 
something other, the concept of something other than itself implies that we think that that other thing was self-existent. And therefore, something self-existent, unchanging, somehow changed enough to create something other than itself. We believe that unchanging things change in order to create other unchanging things, which is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous way of assuming that reality is working. I'm lost. That's okay. You're cool. Okay. Why, why, we're all, we're all whatever lost. created the statue, why did it have to be something that was unchanging? I don't understand why there's that, that because, caveat. Okay. Because we believe that, that we believe that the thing that created the statue exists. Okay. Without being perceived to exist. Maybe I'm off as well, but also thinking about like Okay, so if we're thinking about the human being that carved that statue, is that what created the thing? Or was the tree that the statue came from? Or was it the parents of the people that birthed the person who carved the statue that created the tree? Or was it the tool? Or like, which one thing was the thing that created that? Where where is the thingness? Okay, dig it. Thank you. couldn't everything have created it? Yeah, this food is the gift. This food This food is the gift of the whole universe. I could be wrong, but I think he's trying to get at the point that you can't it you can't really identify any one thing. Like if you're going to think of something as like, oh that's a statue or there's something right there that created the statue, if you're going to think of something, then you have this idea that it's um, this solid and continuous unchanging thing because you're like, oh, that dude over there or like something created that. <clears throat> and when you're kind of thinking like that, you're ignoring the big scale process the that, is, that there is no solid continuous. There's no one thing, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. It's an always changing type of thing. Okay. Good work, good work team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we came to some understanding. Okay, so let's try to figure out the rest of these uh, working together, if possible. Um, the next one is the the gacha, the thing that we're seeking to deny. Things which could exist, things which do exist or do not exist, could arise. Okay, the gist of this one, this is going a little deeper into the same, into the same logic, if you can call it logic. Um, this is Buddhist logic, which is different than a syllogism, syllogistic logic. Okay. If the cause of the statue existed 
Oh, oh, wait, this one starts at the other end. If the statue, <laughs> the previous one we're talking about causes, okay? If the, if the cause of the statue, the, the statue could not cause itself. Something other than the statue could not cause itself. So now we're talking about the result. The statue, the cause of the statue no longer exists at the time that we see the result of the statue. The statue is here, it's not being carved in the moment. So the cause is not present here with the result. I'm with you so far. I might as well turn off the recording right now. This one's not going in the podcast. Uh, Please, I think the contemplation of emptiness by a group is really incredible. I think it's perfect. Podcast, podcast. All right. We're a democracy. Okay. If the cause of the statue existed, we would see it in the room with us. The person who was carving the statue would be here carving the statue with us. That's obviously not the case. So if the statue, the statue can't exist without a cause, and yet we don't see the cause, and so the cause doesn't exist because the cause isn't here in the room with us. The statue exists, so it must have had a cause, but we only perceive the results in the moment. And so that means we posit retroactively a cause onto the result. Let's use another metaphor, which is popular in Buddhism, which is the seed and the sprout. If we have a flower, the flower must have been caused by something. The flower wasn't caused by, an, by the flower. The flower didn't cause the flower. But the flower had a cause. What was the cause? It must have been a seed, because we know that that's where plants come from. Seeds create sprouts, create flowers. But not all seeds create flowers. Some, speeds, some seeds don't sprout to become flowers. So therefore, the seed that created the flower wasn't the cause of the flower until the flower came into being. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> I've never heard it put just like that before. So a cause is only the cause when posited retroactively based upon the effect. So a cause only becomes the cause when, the, when and only when the effect comes into being. And a cause is not a cause until the effect comes into being. Which means causality moves both ways through time. 
A seed isn't <laughs> a seed doesn't create the flower until the flower comes into being, and then the seed becomes the the cause for the flower. And at that point, the seed no longer is a seed. But the seed no longer exists at that point. Oh. At what point in time did the seed cease to become the seed and start to be the flower? When can you say, ah, this particular instance of time was when it ceased to be a seed and it started to become a flower? We're breaking down the way that we think things are happening. We're disproving the way that we think things are happening. We think that there's like a gradual process where the seed gets the right conditions. You can't have a flower. You, to say that you could have a flower without, a partic without that seed, you could have the flower without earth, without soil, without water, without sunlight. All of those things combine to create the cause for the flower only when the flower comes into being. And this is what leads us to the, the reasoning of interdependence. Things exist when and only when they are perceived to exist. They exist the way that they seem to exist because they seem to exist the way they seem to exist to a perceiver. There is no perception, there is no perceived reality without a perceiver of reality. There is no perceivable object until there is an, a perceiver of that object. This is the tree falling in the woods thing, right? This is the tree falling in the woods thing, yeah, yeah. So these are like all of the totally ridiculous, absurd posits that I've been making about the statue. Like obviously there's a statue there, right? There's one, it's carved out of one hunk of wood. It came from one tree, like a guy or a lady carved it. It was shipped here on a boat or something like that. Like that's like where we just know that that's true. Like obviously, like how else could it be here? But that's the gakcha. That's the thing that we think exists regardless of whether or not it's being perceived to exist. I mean, wouldn't it be crazy if that was carved right out back by a robot? I mean, we don't know, really. <laughs> that's the future, for sure. <laughs> so the, the reasoning of interdependence, interdependence, this is karma and emptiness. This is like where the rubber meets the road with Buddhist metaphysics. That the subjective quality of perception is an inherent characteristic in reality. Our, the gakja is that we assume that there's an objective reality that we're like randoming around in, bumping into stuff that there's like, that when somebody pisses us off, that they are self-existently uh, an irritating person. But the irritating, here's the cash out. The irritating person only exists 
when there is an irritated person. There is no irritating person without an irritated person. There is no flower without a perceiver of the flower. There is no statue without a perceiver of the flower. The, the, the statue, that was a good one, thank you. The, the statue exists interdependently with the perception of the statue. And this is what emptiness means. It means that reality is itself subjective. Not that we have an interpretation of reality. This is like um, perspectivism, you know, the, the kind of uh, philosophical point of view of perspectivism, that, that everybody is entitled to their opinion, you know? But actually, everyone is perceiving, is correctly perceiving reality. This is earlier in the reading. There's a, a whole talk about, there's a whole part about the... Uh, um, impaired mind like we talk about uh we talk about reality as uh phenomena that are perceived by an unimpaired mind and an you know an unimpaired mind means that you're not like hallucinating under the influence of chemicals or something like that right that that two people could have perceived the same person and they could and one person could perceive that person as like the most annoying person on the planet and the other person could perceive that as like my spouse who I love and cook dinner for and I, I clean up so that they can have a nice place to live, you know? And, and both of those people are accurately perceiving their sense data. And both of those realities are accurate. Both of those realities are true. There is no essential objective self-standing Reality. There is no irritating or loved one, irritating person or loved one. There's no such thing as either of those things. The irritating person or the loved one only comes into existence when it is perceived by someone as such. And this is the definition of metaphysics. This is the definition of emptiness. That... Reality is purely subjective. It's not, there's not a reality out there that we have a subjective interpretation of, but that the reality comes into existence with the perception of the reality. And the perception is accurate. The irritating person really is an irritating person. It's not like the irritating person doesn't exist and you're just wrong. You're accurately perceiving an irritating person. But it's purely subjective. It's based on your tendencies to see things a certain way. So the homework assignment for this class is to evaluate in your meditation practice, how holes, W-H-O-L-E, holes, are an overlay of your mind onto a collection of parts based on your subjective 
interpretation. The things that you consider singularities, singular existing things, are based on the way that your habits are forcing you to compile them into wholes. <laughs> Let's take a break, shall we? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs>